is amazing. It's just amazing that God loves us. Man, I thought that was that, those songs were just overwhelming. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, I seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Bro. Um, by the way, if y'all are not involved in one of our missional community groups, that's why we eat together every week. We eat together every week in our missional community groups. I hope you are if you're if you lead one. It's to it's to be a picture on earth of that very thing. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. That's that's why that's just to be an earthly picture of none of us belong to be belong at the table, but we're all at the table together. That's a beautiful picture. Um, all right, tonight we're gonna um, talk a little bit about some more things that we all struggle with, and this series called cross culture, and uh, we're gonna begin the same way we begin every. Week. Why are we calling it cross-culture? Because we say it each week so that it, it drills it into your bones. That Christians of all people, of all people, Christians uh, ought to be a, a unique culture of their own. Not prudish, holier than thou's, but people who know that they are sinners before God and, and they, they need saving from their sins and know that they cannot save themselves and know that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life in our place. He died a death in my place. He rose again in my place. He, he, he ascended to the right hand of the Father in my place. He is interceding for me at the right hand of the Father that I so need desperately so that he will save me to the uttermost. Hebrews seven twenty five. And for that reason, Christians of all people ought to be deeply grateful and humble about themselves. Deeply grateful that I'm in Christ, the Bible tells me. I'm in Him. My life is hidden with Christ in God. And, and, and I'm a new creation in Christ. Um, I may not in every way, in every action, in every word, in every thought look like a new creation. But my, I have a new standing place. My standing place is in Jesus and and, I, and because I'm in Christ, and because you're in Christ, if you're repenting of your sins, you're trusting in Jesus, if you're in Christ, you are positionally, when God looks at you, you are as, as righteous and as loved and as accepted, you are as all of those things as Jesus himself is. Um, and nothing can separate you from the love of Christ and the... And, 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 that, that knowledge, those truths about you, it, it ought to create a unique culture of people that's not like any other culture of people on earth. Um, people who, because I know the holiness of God and because I know the depth of my sin and because I know my only hope, hallelujah, all I have is Christ and that's okay, he's all I need. If I have all I've got is Jesus. Then, then I'm okay that you know who I really am. Is that my hope is not in me. My hope is not in who I can fool you into think I, thinking I am. 
My hope is in Jesus and his perfection for me. The more I can be honest with you about myself, the more the power of those things I struggle with begin to break over me because not, not because it's anything magical, but just saying it out loud sometimes. Um, I don't know how else to describe it. It just does. And not only you hear it and you can encourage me and you can pray for me and we can hold each other accountable, but it begins to power those things I struggle with, uh, begin to break down. And also, the more I'm honest about those things, the more Jesus is magnified in my life. It's, it becomes clearer to you that I, I really am not self-righteous. <laughs> My righteousness is Jesus, you know. Um, and just like we did last week, to remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, last week we recited together the answer to question number 60 of the Heidelberg Catechism, written 500-something years ago, because um, it's a good thing to do. The church has been saying catechisms together for all its history. It's the way the church has learned the faith. The question is, how are you right with God? And I want us to say the answer again together. We're going to say it out loud together every week. Every week we're going to say it out loud together so that it gets drilled into your bones. This is the truth of the gospel, and I want you to be able to know it and say it You'll, by the end of this semester, you probably say it without even trying to memorize it. Here's the answer. How are you right with God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept the gift of God with a believing heart. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we want to we want to um, we want to bathe in your gospel tonight, and we want to um, we want we want we want and need your Holy Spirit. Need your Holy Spirit to speak through us and to speak to us in the words of Scripture and to comfort us with the truths of the gospel that we just heard when, we, when, when, when our shortcomings and our sins and our struggles, when they rise to the surface and, and, and they become apparent in our own mind and we feel like we have to say them out loud to somebody else, I pray that your gospel would be our comfort. And I pray um, yeah, that through, through our time in the Word tonight and through our time in prayer, you would transform us more into the likeness of Christ. In his name I pray, amen. All right, so we've already talked about the last, the last two weeks about some very common struggles that we have and deal with. Um, two weeks ago, um, we talked about probably the most common struggle that we all have, that's some form of fear, anxiety, or worry. 
Um, last week was a close second, and that was gossip and slander. The only reason it runs a close second is because we don't talk all the time. And fear, anxiety, and worry goes on in your head even when you're not saying a word. So, But tonight we're going to say a few things about another pervasive struggle we have. One that I mentioned a couple weeks ago on Sunday morning when we were looking at Luke 9.23 when we got to the point on deny yourself. I, this topic sort of came up then. Um, and that is the topic of distraction. So I need everybody to pay attention tonight. Distraction. Uh, I would be willing to bet that maybe distraction isn't a sin or, a, or something that you would expect to be on a list of sins and shortcomings that we all have. I mean, uh, it, it seems to be in a different category than anxiety or slander or sexual temptation. I mean, it just feels, you know, uh, you know last, like last week we, we talked about gossip and slander and we saw all these different verses pile up on each other, especially from the Proverbs about how we use our tongues and the wicked way we use our tongues. The Bible just says so much about gossip and slander. And we talked about fear. We talked about the, the command, do not fear, appears 365 times in the Bible. It just doesn't feel like distraction is one of those things that the Bible says very much about. Um, and on that assumption, it's probably something that we maybe hardly ever give thought to. Maybe, maybe you do. Probably don't. So, it, you know, is distraction something you struggle with? Is it, does it matter? Does it matter? I mean, is it, or is it actually a, a spiritual issue that we, uh, that has spiritual implications in our lives? Or is it nothing more than an inconvenience when you're trying to study for a test or something? Or listen to me. <laughs> Which is it? What can we say about distraction? What, what, does the Bible say anything about it? I think the Bible says more than you might think about distraction. And I hope that we, by the time we leave tonight, you'll see it in a different light and, and you'll, you'll uh, recognize it to be the struggle that it is that we have and we ought to pay attention to um, and fight against. Uh, this, even, even after tonight, maybe... Distraction is not going to, like when you break up into your prayer times, this is not going to be one of those things that you feel deep shame over, you know, um, but, but one that we need to be held accountable for nonetheless. So um, by the time we do come and pray, we will have looked at a good bit of Scripture, and I hope we'll understand the struggle in its seriousness better. I just want to make three points tonight really quickly about distraction. The first is this. Distraction is a reality. If you want to, open to Luke chapter 10. Um, we'll start in Luke 10 for just a minute. Distraction is a reality. It has always been a reality and it always will be a reality. Um, but we need to think about it. And what I want to say at the outset um, in talking about the reality of distraction is that there is more than one kind of distraction at its root, at least in the terms I was thinking about it. I'm, I'm going to admit that I'm not saying everything I could say about distraction. More than one kind of distraction, uh, and, it's, and it's a distinction that would be good to realize for our own good. Because if you, 
if you followed like the, um, the normal method of what does the Bible say about X, you would say, what does the Bible say about worry? So you go to the back of your Bible and look up worry and look at all the verses that say, talk about worry. What does the Bible say about fear? You look it up, the fear, fear. You look it up, if you looked at distract or something like that, I think, to my knowledge, one verse comes up that uses the word distract or distracted. Uh, and I think it's this one in Luke chapter 10. Uh, and it's the well-known story of Mary and Martha, beginning in verse 38. Let's look at that story really quickly. Um, we're going to read Mar- uh, excuse me, Luke 10, 38 through the end of the chapter. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted. There's that one occurrence of distracted in the Bible. Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious And troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Martha has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So like, Mary. Mary did, yeah, Martha didn't, sorry. (laughs) I'll edit the recording. Uh, Mary has chosen the good portion. Um, (laughs) Really going in the opposite direction. Um, So to my knowledge, that's the only time you have the the word distracted in the Bible. Somebody being distracted. It's Martha who, when Jesus was a guest in her house, was distracted with the house, went to serving the food, and doing all the things that um, everything in her mind, to make everything was perfect for her guest, and while her sister was just simply sitting there listening to Jesus. Um, That's one kind of distraction. Mistaking what we do for, uh, for the Lord as being the most important thing rather than what the Lord has done for us. In other words, this, letting spiritual activity um, distract you so much that you mistake it for spiritual life. Spiritual activity distracts you so much that you, mis- you might mistake it for spiritual life. You can let good things distract you from the best things. You can let important things, yes, important, distract you from the most important things. You can, um, you, you, you can not be close to the Lord at all in your daily walk, but serve in the church in some way. You know, you're on a praise team or you're in a missional community group or you hold babies on Sunday morning whatever, you feel like because of that activity there's some that's gaining you something and, the, and your activity is distracting you from the main thing going on in your heart. That's one kind of distraction. But there's another kind of distraction that is a deeper and a more insidious kind. Um, and it's not simply mistaking the good for the best. It's a deeper craving for constant distraction or preoccupation or amusement constant 
It, it's a reality for us. It, it, it always has been. We crave it. Um, but it's, it's always been that way. It's, and it's not something we're just now realizing about ourselves. Again, just around the same time as the Heidelberg Catechism, 500 and something years ago, the French theologian Blaise Pascal. You ever heard of Blaise Pascal? Pascal um, wrote down a, a book just in, it has, in French, it's titled, but the title just means Thoughts. He just wrote a book of Thoughts. And this is one of those things that he said in that, in that book. Uh, he, said the, he said, the only thing that consoles us for our miseries is diversion. And yet it is the greatest of our miseries, for it is that above all which prevents us thinking about ourselves and leads us imperceptibly to destruction. Diversion passes our time and brings us imperceptibly to our death. Bro. That was 500 years ago. They didn't have smartphones. They didn't even have newspapers, I don't think. I don't know. Maybe they did. I mean, you can tell, and you can tell from that quote that Pascal didn't have a very optimistic estimation of the desire for distraction or amusement or, or whatever you want to call it, preoccupation, because he understood that it, that it didn't just hinder us in our daily work, whatever that may be, but it, it numbs us, numbs us to spiritual things. Um, the habit of distraction, preoccupation, diversion, bleeds over into our ability to pray, bleeds over in our ability to focus on the Word of God and, to, and, and, and really our ability to focus on anything. I don't know if you feel that in your mind or your heart, but I feel it bad in my own life. It's always been a problem, but it's getting worse. It's getting worse uh, it, just in my lifetime. It's, it's gotten just a little over 30 years ago. Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Um, it's an interesting read. It was written like in the mid-'80s, uh, but, man, it's prophetic. It's prophetic. Uh, amusing ourselves to death. He was a professor at the University of Chicago. And he was talking in 1985 about how uh, TV was changing us. Um, man, it's so prophetic because he had no idea. He didn't have any idea uh, at that time what our phones would become. Well, there is no doubt that our phones have made what was always a reality Way worse. Way worse. And in his book, I'm going to recommend a lot of books to you tonight. This is show and tell night. Twelve ways your phone is changing you. Twelve ways your phone is changing you. Hardly recommend that book. Tony Reinke says, we check our smartphones about 81,500 times each year. Or once every 4.3 minutes of our waking lives. I'm not going to lie. I think every 4.3 minutes seems generous. There is absolutely no question that our phones are our biggest distraction. At least it is for me, and I assume you're like me. Um, we are terrified. Or at least it makes, it, it makes us irritable. To not have an outlet for distraction. I mean, when, when is the last time you were waiting somewhere 
anywhere for any period of time. You're just waiting there, and you just enjoyed the quiet. You just enjoyed the quiet. You didn't feel at all compelled to get your phone out of your pocket. Or you forgot your, home, your phone at home, and you were totally cool with that. I'll be honest with you, it's been a while for me. Um, I made it all the way through college without a cell phone. But man, you would never know it by looking at me now. Um, Tony Ranke also said in that book right there, um, to be without the constant availability of distraction is solitary confinement. A punishment to be most dreaded. That is why in those moments when we realize we've forgotten our phone, lost it, or let the battery run out, we taste the captivity of a prison cell, and it can be frightening. I have felt that way so many times, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm ashamed at how much my phone is in my hand. You may not, it may not seem like, it may not seem like it's a deal right now to you, but um, the habits you sow now will stay with you, and time doesn't stop, you know? Like, I, 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 was, I was sitting where you were, like, really not that long ago, and now I've got children now. I'm married, and I have children. I, I, I'm sort of ashamed at... at at, at perhaps what my children are seeing in me at home. Like they're seeing their dad. Is their dad paying attention to them or is their dad just on their, his phone all the time? You know, does dad love his phone more than he loves his kids? The, the habits you sow now are going to stay with you. They just will. If you don't believe me, just keep living. It'll prove me right. Um, you might not feel that way, but... And you might not feel that there's anything wrong with that, but there is, and we need to know why. Distraction is a reality, Um, but it's a reality because it's so easy. Distraction is easy. Why? Why is the distraction, or why is distraction so attractive and so easy? Why? And you, and you may not think, you may not consciously think distraction is attractive, but Every time you sit down in a quiet moment, there is an almost immediate impulse to pick up your phone. That's because it's attractive to sit there. And, and Why, though? Why is it so tempting? Why is it so satisfying to mindlessly scroll through a social media feed? And then when you scroll a while... You refresh and start scrolling again. And then sometimes you find yourself just scrolling because your thumb just is used to doing that. And you're just scrolling and you're not even thinking about what's scrolling by because your mind has already wandered somewhere else. Then you come back and, oh, I'm, I'm, yeah, you know. Why do we find that so easy and so satisfying to spend up to five hours of every day, up to five stinking hours a day on our phones. And not all at once. I mean, five hours at once might be better. I'm going to spend the hours of 5 p.m. to 10 on my phone. That'd be bad, but it'd be better 
than five hours just cumulatively that you did in little spurts all throughout the day. And I do. Why is it so easy? I think the Bible gives us a couple of reasons. One is the world is really, really good at creating things that are very satisfyingly distractive. Distracting. Distractive is not a word. Just very sa- the world is good at creating those things that are just very satisfyingly distracting. Where does the Bible say that? I think it's hinted at in the parable of the sower. So you're in Luke 10. If you want to just flip over to Luke 8, but specifically when Jesus is talking about part of the parable in Luke 8, 14. In Luke 8, 14, Jesus said, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. The culture around us is really, really good at creating things that capture your attention and hold on to it. I don't want to just talk about my kids all night long, but here's the way my kids are. My, the TV is on, and they're, and they're playing, and I'm talking about like, not even my older kids, but like younger ones, like Hannah and Timothy, who are six and four. And they're just playing, they're playing, they're doing their little things while the TV is on. But as soon as a commercial comes on, and they are glued until the commercials go off, and then they're back to playing. Why? Because they're really good at making commercials that from the first sound of the commercial, it grabs your attention. and a four, It grabs a four-year-old's attention. He's glued to it, right? The world is really good at creating things that Jesus here calls the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. It's really attractive, really addictive, and we happily give her all the way our time to it. Give it away. And it's fun because they're good at creating things. But the, the second reason that, that it's so easy, it's not, just because the, it's, not the, it's not just the world's fault. You can't just blame it on the world, right? The other biblical reason distraction is so easy is because we are fallen people. We are fallen, broken people. And because we, we are fallen people, the Bible just says sin has messed up the world, and that includes us. So Paul said uh, in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 23, Romans 8, verses 20 through 23, Paul says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We not only the, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That fir- those first words in verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. 
Sin caused creation to be subjected to futility. That's maybe not a word that we use too much. What does futility mean? Futility, what does that mean? It means pointlessness. Whole creation was subjected to a gravitation toward pointlessness. We, in other words, we, what that looks like in practice is we chase after things that don't matter as if they do. So that's a bad combination. The world is really good and it's vying to distract us and really good at it and we are naturally prone to it. But Ephesians 5, verses 15 and 16 says, uh, something that's not on the screen, says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. That's Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. Which means, yes, we're naturally prone to not make the best use of the time. We're naturally prone to distraction. But we can't be content with that. Because we're commanded to make the best use of the time. And I don't. I don't. Because, yeah, we just can't. Because deep down, if you haven't thought about it before now, hopefully you, now you realize the third and final point that distraction is not neutral. Distraction is not neutral. It's not a neutral issue. Distraction is a reality, yes, but it, it's not just a hindrance. And I hope you know by now, when I'm talking about distraction, I really am talking about mainly this. It's, it's not just a hindrance when you're trying to study for a test or whatever. It's, it's a spiritual struggle because everything in the world is. It's a spiritual struggle. I don't mean this to be story time with Kevin, but I've got to read you something from another book that I will highly recommend to you, Recapturing the Wonder by Mike Cosper. Recapturing the Wonder. By Mike Cosper. Such a good book. Here's what he says. Beginning of chapter 2. I witnessed a ritual sacrifice in the middle of a cool third wave coffee shop the other day. It's the sort of place that attracts herds of bearded hipsters and where they brew your coffee by hand one cup at a time. I was sitting at a long row of benches against the wall, watching the crowd as they ordered, mingled, and eventually collected their meticulously crafted drinks from a stern-faced barista wearing an ironic t-shirt and a fedora. A guy in his 20s wearing skinny jeans, plaid shirt, and a beanie, which might as well have been the clientele's uniform, came in carrying a heavy book. It looked like a nice academic volume, hardcover, Black cloth binding, nice paper. He ordered and sat at a table near the middle of the coffee shop, scanning his phone while waiting for his drink to come up at the bar. 
After collecting it, he returned to the table near the center of the room and began his rather embarrassing and earnest religious display. He was arranging his book and his latte so that he could take a picture of them with his phone. He spent five minutes doing this, and I assure you that although five minutes might seem like a very long time to spend doing something like this, I'm certain that it was five minutes because I clocked him, which says something about me, I know. He tried capturing the image with the book on its side next to the latte. Then he tried a few with the spine open to hold the book upright, the latte in front of it. He wasn't finished. He then attempted several shots with the coffee cup perched on top of the book, but I'm guessing here the light wasn't good enough to capture both the latte art and the title of the book. Eventually, he started taking images with his book in his hand, with the book in his hand, including a few attempts without the latte at all. I began to worry about his latte growing cold and foam turning dry and ugly. Eventually, he captured an image with the book on its side, propped up by his hand at an angle behind the cup. He tapped the phone screen for a while, editing and posting the photo online. Finally, he set his phone down and began to drink his latte. Then he opened the book. Now, here's the best part. I swear, he looked at the book for at most 45 seconds. He flipped it open, thumbed a page or two, his eyes blank and disinterested, and then closed it and pulled out his phone again to see what kind of response the image got. A moment or two later, my wife texted me. I alerted her about the keen observations I was making in the coffee shop. She told me to get back to writing. Then she asked which shop I was in. I told her, and moments later, she texted me the image the guy had posted to Instagram, which blew my mind. You're like Batman, I said. She took this as high praise that it was. Only when I saw the image, though, did I notice the title of the book. It was John Frame's The Doctrine of the Word of God. Perhaps it would have been slightly more ironic if it had been uh, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. But this one was nearly perfect, a book about the primacy of God's Word as a prop in a social media post. Here's where it knife goes in. Religion is the business of appeasing gods, little g. In the old days, you'd take some unfortunate animal to a temple, give it to a priest, and the priest would dispatch of it before you, uh, for you before the watchful eyes of whatever god, goddess, or demigod was in attendance. Hopefully, if the animal was in good enough condition or if the god, goddess, or demigod was in good, a good enough mood, the priest would return with a blessing, sending you on your way with the knowledge that you had satisfied him, her, or it. If you were a true believer, the whole thing was done with a lot of love, care, and attention. And although most of us don't attend temples or make flesh and blood sacrifices, the religious impulses that drive all that activity are deeply human and inescapable. These days, our sacrifices are virtual. We take an image, we type up a few thoughts, we edit and crop them and shape them, until they're just right, the finest specimen we can offer, and we extend them via, via digital mediators to a pantheon of little gods that wait to judge our work. If we gain their favor, they award us with likes, favorites, comments, or repostings. If not, the results can be the pain of echoing silence, or worse, we might incur their wrath. That's a sobering insight sobering insight into the I'm not even overstating this I mean seriously spiritual thing going on like we don't put 
We are spiritual people. God is a spiritual being, made spiritual people. Everything we do has, is spiritual. The friendships we make, the meals we eat, waking up, sleeping, everything we do is spiritual in nature. And that includes what we do with our phones. And I hope we have eyes to see that. And the reality is that being addicted to, to uh, distraction is changing us in more than one way. Uh, it is changing us mentally, but more fundamentally, it's changing us spiritually. Cal Newport, oh, book, it's book day, guys. I recommend this book to you, Deep Work by Cal Newport. Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World. It's not even a Christian book. He's a professor of computer science at Georgetown, but easily written book, uh, and he is like very poignantly right. Um, he cites in that book, though, a study done by, at Stanford University, uh, that, and he says that this incessant attention switching, that's what we do, that's what it is. Scrolling through a social media feed is in, incessant attention switching. Um, it is actually changing our brains and our ability to focus. Um, and he's not the only one who's noticed that. I mean, for heaven's sake, 12 ways your phone is changing you. Um, he's not the first one to see that. And James K.A. Smith, you are what you love. I promise you, re- listen to the podcast because you will, if you read this, you'll be thankful that you read it. Um, he says in that book that all habits are like that. All habits, as he puts it, these aren't just things that we do, but things that do something to us. That's what habits are, whatever they may be. But Cal Newport says in, that, in, in, in Deep Work, once your brain has become accustomed to on-demand distraction, it's hard to shake the addiction even when you want to concentrate. So he wrote that book. He wrote this book. He's not a Christian. He wrote this book to help people be better at their daily job, to just be more productive. How much more important is it not to be distracted from hearing the voice of God in His Word and the, the, the state of our spiritual souls and, my, and, our, and our spiritual health before God? How much more is the, is the reality of distraction a hindrance to our walk with Christ. Psalm 27.4 says, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. One thing that I ask. One thing I seek. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord seems to require a singleness of mind that is able to think undistracted. But when we've trained ourselves to resist that kind of thinking and reflection, it leads to further spiritual problem. And here is the progression. Okay, Here's the progression. One, we are distracted by our idols. Two, Distraction itself becomes an idol. 
And three, we become like our idols. That's the biblical progression. One, we are distracted by our idols. Two, distraction itself becomes an idol. And three, we become like our idols. What does that mean? Well, it's true for anything, but especially true as it pertains to social media. The approval of other people can be an idol. And so we're constantly checking to see how many likes we got. FOMO can be an idol, right? So we're constantly checking to to make sure we know everything that's going on. Don't want to miss anything. Sports can be an idol. So we're constantly checking to, to read about that. We can idolize practically anything, and we do practically idolize everything. Idolatry is just not, a, it's not just an Old Testament thing. But then the more we let ourselves become distracted by whatever it is, the more we come to enjoy that distraction, so we treat it as an idol. Work a little bit, look a little bit, work a little bit, look a little bit, work a little bit, look a little bit. And we give in to every single inclination to stop whatever it is you're doing and pick up the phone. We obey it. It becomes an idol. Distraction itself becomes an idol. And it comes every 4.3 minutes at least. But then, Scripture says we become like our idols. Let me just, as we come to uh, close to an end, let's think about this. What does that mean? Turn to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. We become like our idols. Psalm 115. So Psalm 115, we're going to read the first eight verses. It's not going to be on the screen, sorry. So you really do need to turn to it. Um, He says, Psalmist says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. A great memory verse. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That's another good memory verse. But it's going to be a contrast between God and idols. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. What does it mean to become like them? Well, look back in verses 5, 6, and 7. Mouths but can't speak. Eyes but don't see, ears but don't hear, noses but don't smell, hands but don't feel, feet but don't walk. They're dead. They're spiritually dead. Our idols deaden us spiritually. 
That does not mean that we can lose our salvation. That's not what I'm saying. But they can callous our hearts toward God. And, and if left unchecked, it could reveal something more serious about us. So what do we do? What do we do? We'll wrap it up with this. What do we do? How do we see this through the cross? Well, for one thing, we see this um, as anything else, as a struggle that Christ gave his life for. I mean, I mean if you're like me and you think about this and you go, I'm, I'm eat up with it. And I see that it's not good. I mean, this constant distraction is not just hurting your ability to think and concentrate, which is bad in itself. And it, sometimes it's leading you to greater sins that are like fear of man over fear of God. You can do that. It can lead you to bondage and to pornography. I mean, this is a big deal. And you know, only you know the places that it's led you. So just know, this, like anything else, is, is, is a sin and a, a struggle that Christ gave his life for. And our hope is not in our ability to do perfectly anything, including spending completely undistracted time with the Lord in his word and in prayer. Jesus commended the man who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It's, it's the object of our faith. It's the object of our faith who saves us, not the pristineness of our faith. We are saved through faith, not by faith. We're saved by Christ through faith, right? But also realize that Christ has given us his Holy Spirit. Who produces in us the fruit of the Holy Spirit. One aspect of which is self-control. So the Holy Spirit will help you to build good habits. That can break your addiction to your phone and every other distraction. So that we're more faithful followers of Christ. And I don't have time nor am I an expert on all the practical how-tos about how can I, how can I break my, my addiction to my phone or uh, addiction to distraction. But I, any of these that I recommend to you, they have a thousand good ideas. That's why I brought them. So read Recapturing the Wonder. Read 12 Ways Your Phone's is, Phone is Changing You. Read Deep Work. Read You Are What You Love. Um, read Disruptive Witnesses, one I read, read of. If you don't write these down, if you want to know, just come see me before you leave. A lot of those books have some really good ideas uh, for breaking this addiction of ours. So distraction is a thing, man. Um, it's a thing. Again, it's not probably one of those things that you're going to feel deep shame over. The, the distraction a aspect of it is probably not what you're going to feel deep shame over. If the constant distraction by the phone has led you into deeper sins, those are the, probably the things you'll feel shame over. 
no shame is ever too deep for the cross of Jesus Christ, so just know that. But, but uh, when we break up and pray, when you say, yeah, I'm distracted by my phone, yeah, I'm distracted by my phone, yeah, I'm distracted by my phone, it's not, just pray for each other uh, to, to work hard to build habits, to, to, to break the addiction you have to having your phone in, in your hand at all times. Be creative about it. Find ways. Commit to reading one of these books that might give you a good idea that will help that dependence in you. But if anything, also pray that you'll see it for what it is. See that issue for what it is. There's a reason I put distraction in, a, in, in this list that I spent a whole week talking about it. Because it's a, it's a thing that we've got to get a hold of. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for... Um, this, this admonition that you've given to us in your word um, because sure it's true that you look up distraction in, your, in, in, the, in the scriptures and it, there's only one verse that shows up but you have, you have given us um, so much wisdom about, about this issue thank you for it help us to see that it's a spiritual issue not just a, a nothing issue and certainly not just a a practical hindrance issue. It's a spiritual one. We're, uh, we're chopping ourselves off at the knees in our spiritual walk. And so, Father, help us to, as we pray for each other, to, to give us the strength, Lord, we ask, to, to make some headway in breaking this addiction we have to distraction. We pray it in Jesus' name.